Pepper, meet everyone. Hey, how are you doing, ma'am? Doing real well. Very good, and I, I appreciate you coming on the pie this evening, and, um, well, let's be real. I screwed up. We gotta start over. There's gonna be a lot of awkwardness on this part, because, well, we <laughs> were having a conversation, and then I realized how big of a fuck-up I did, so, yeah. Things happen. Um, Things happen. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, Pepper, if, if if you don't mind telling people, um, you're originally from what part of Appalachia? From Huntington, West Virginia. Okay. And so, God, this is so awkward because I actually know the answer now. Um <laughs> So you went to school at Marshall or elsewhere? Went to Marshall. Went to Marshall for about five years. Um, actually sort of grew up in the halls of Marshall University because when I was a kid, my mom was studying art there. Um, and then later, after I went off to grad school at Ohio University, I came back and taught for about a year, year and a half at Marshall. So, um, yeah, it's it sort of runs in the family. And teaching at that school was something that you just didn't care for, so you left, or did you enjoy the time? I did enjoy it. Um, I did connect with a lot of, you know, really amazing students, um, and I I ended up getting another job elsewhere and moving to Charleston, um, and at that point, I taught for about a year and a half at West Virginia State University as well. And then, you know, it became pretty clear that with some of the changes in, in arts funding at, at uh, you know, higher education level that I was, it's going to be a long time before I was going to be able to get a full-time job with benefits. And I just wasn't making enough money to make it worth my while to continue teaching. And uh, and to a degree, I was I was a little bit tired of having, you know, like, people in their early 20s futures in my hands, you know. So uh, I took a job as a sound engineer and have been basically doing that ever since um, and just sort of learned learned the trade as I did it. So, um, you know, I never went to school for any of that stuff, but have just learned by doing it for about the past six years. So basically you're kind of the typical hillbilly. You've got to adapt to the life that comes at you. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> but um, getting back to a question we were just starting to kind of touch on before I realized how much I'd screwed up. Um, <laughs> one of our friends had mentioned, and we do have a lot of mutual friends. Um, one of our friends had mentioned that she was curious as to whether or not you being the sound engineer with so many bands coming through and this, that, and the other, and you're also a performer, as to whether or not it kind of molds 
your approach at being a performer or anything else? It does, absolutely. Um, I've been really fortunate to see a lot of really amazing musical acts and other kinds of acts, too, some comedy and some sideshow stuff. Um, And uh, I've seen some really terrible acts as well, and I've learned lessons from both of those. Um, I would say if I were um, just starting out, there are so many pieces of advice I would have given myself over the past six years of being a sound engineer, just from, you know, from seeing people do, do things that really connected well with the audience or, or did things that just really turned the audience off. Um, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people make mistakes and, um, and it's interesting. Yeah, that's been super informative, but more than that, I think, uh, having, seeing a lot of like live original music has been a really big deal to me. Um, it's, it's changed the way I think about what I listen to. Um, and, uh, I I think it's really important to go on a regular basis and see live music. And like I said, I'm really fortunate because I get paid to do that, but I feel like, you know, if you're someone who's in a community and you haven't checked out your live music scene, that that's something you should definitely go and do because you're going to be surprised and probably really impressed, um, especially here in App. Oh, I'm sorry. Please finish your thought. Oh, oh I was going to say, especially here in Appalachia, there's, you know, just a really rich culture, a really ri- rich musical culture here. Indeed. And, and that was actually something, and I apologize for not properly redoing everything after the recording issue. Um, Fandango is your full moniker at this point, correct? Yes. And you are a multifaceted person beyond everything that goes on with the music production, if I understand correctly? Yes, (laughs) indeed. um. So well, there's also a burlesque troupe. There's this issue of a burlesque troupe too. <laughs> I was so, going to bring that up, but go right ahead since you did. <laughs> we did. We um uh, about what five years ago, a friend of mine who was um, part of a figure drawing class that I was a regular model for um, was interested in in doing um, like some more kind of risque figure drawing classes with a an uh, what was a national organization called Dr. Sketchy's Anti-Art School. Um, so he organized um, our first Dr. Sketchy's event. And um, after that, it was kind of like we started talking and there was a burlesque troupe that was going to come through town. And um, they were looking for some local girls to perform and they're just really there wasn't very many, I mean, there wasn't anybody, or at least if there was, you know, we didn't know how to get in contact with them. And so we decided we were just going to give it a shot and flew by the seat of our pants and it started to gain a little momentum and we started booking shows and putting together these big performances. And, um, and through that, uh, I ended up starting a band with a couple of the other performers who were musicians and, you know, we, we ended up sort of learning each other's material as part of the burlesque show. And then from there, it was just like a hop, skip and a jump to us starting a band. So we did. Um, and that's been a real, that's been a real big influence to, um, I think burlesque is a, a really cool art form. Um, I've seen a lot of really talented burlesque performer, performers from 
from doing it. Um, we've been real fortunate to work with some like really amazing women in the industry, like Ula Uberson and uh, Minnie Tonka and uh, gosh, it's hard to think of Darlinda, just Darlinda um, and uh, Anita Cookie. Um, and where there's, there's a whole bunch of others whose names I can't remember at the moment, but, um, I think, uh, you know, there's a, a, a pretty cool group of women out there doing burlesque who are just brilliant and, and funny and beautiful. And I've been really fortunate to get to work with them. Well, that's great. And I mean, not poo-pooing the story, but I'm not a hundred percent sure wh- what drew you to burlesque i mean you just fell into it or well uh, i actually have a background in dance um i did dance for a long time when i was a kid so um i kind of grew up you know putting on makeup and costumes and dancing around in front of my family and friends you know that was always a big part of my life so it seemed really natural to try burlesque um i've always been really comfortable with my body and comfortable with nudity and um i sort of felt like that was something that i could use as an empowering um force in my life and and that really is i think kind of the crux of burlesque and and what makes it uh distinct from just striptease as a you know as a profession um burlesque is something that um you know when done correctly it's elevated to an art form and uh you know that's what we always sort of strive for i don't know that we always accomplish it but that's what we're always striving (laughs) no i i I apologize i was giggling because i do love the fact that you caveated that (laughs) (laughs) yeah well, I have to. I, you know, I, I don't want to take credit where it's not deserved. But um, people can actually, well, if they want to be creepy, YouTube you <laughs> for some burlesque, right? Indeed, yeah. I think if you Google me, there's a there is a burlesque performance with me and uh, Penny Maple, um, and it's to uh, one of my original songs called Scotch Whiskey. And uh, she she assists me while I she uh, we do a strip tease together while I play the banjo, um, which was a real interesting thing to work out. It presented some challenges that aren't typical of a burlesque performance when you have to have a banjo strapped around you. You can't lift your shirt off, you know. <laughs> so um, that was a, that was a fun performance. That's, that's been a long time ago, but yeah. As far there may be a few others somewhere out and about on YouTube too, but that's the one that I know for sure is up very nice and uh just because you brought up the banjo and music so do you mind telling people a little bit about more what you're doing on that side of things because you're fairly active and i believe well at this point aren't you no i'm sorry i i I could be mistaken i've been sick um you're still fairly active within the Charleston scene, correct? But is it your band yes. or a different band? Yes, uh, I'm in three different bands at the moment. Well, two bands, and then I have my solo act, um, which my solo act was the first thing. It was uh, I started going by Pepper Fandango and doing um, the kind of like current set of like sort of feminist garage rock stuff that I do about six years ago. And I went through several iterations of uh, messing around with a kick drum 
and uh, play in different instruments that I made, like cigar box banjos. And then uh, for a while I had a drummer and a bass player and um, then went, sort of went back to doing the kick drum thing again and I picked up a, a big Slingerland 24-inch bass drum and a hi-hat and I stand up and I play the kick drum uh, with my right foot and the hi-hat with my left foot and they're behind me so I kick them with my heels and then I play the banjo and I play uh, a really amazing custom-made Nashville banjo and um, it, it's as far as I'm concerned the finest instrument money can buy um, and uh, and then so I do a lot of original material with that and some cover songs and um, like I said when we started the burlesque troupe I, I met uh Alexis um, and Sam, who are the, my bandmates in my band, The Laser Beams. Um, and like I said, we started out as just the sort of backing band for the burlesque troupe, but that really sort of evolved into its own thing as well. And then in the past year, I started playing with a group that is a Pogues tribute band called the Charleston Rogues. And um, that's been a, a really fun experience, and I've become a much better strings person in the process. <laughs> in the process, and and also in the meantime, have a lot harder time writing songs because I, you know, feel like I'm always comparing myself to Shane McGowan now, <laughs> and you know, he's a really fantastic songwriter. So, and I think also Makes- just because you're bringing up the Rogues, um, that's that's one of the very well held. It was the first time that your name was floated in front of me was because of Misty from Gypsy Rhythm. Yeah, Misty's, uh, she's just a fantastic performer, and she's our flute player, and, uh, and she sings, uh, she sings a few songs with us in the Rogues, um, and yeah, her band Gypsy Rhythm, I've played with them a, a number of times, and they're just fantastic performers. I love their original material, um. You know, and uh, I try to play with them every chance I get because it's always a fun time. Very cool. And now, just kind of getting back to what you had said with the cigar box banjos. Mm-hmm. You make these. I mean, is it a good supplement for a living or what? No, no. I, I'd have to charge more for them. And I, it's actually been a while since I've made anything because I've been just kind of busy and I tend to kind of bop around on different projects a lot. But uh, I that was something that came about as part of a just experimental thing. Actually, it was a, I played a show back a million years ago when I first started playing music. I was in a band called The Buttonflies. And my ex-boyfriend and I were, you know, like, that was our band. And he and I split up. But one of the last shows that we played, we had to uh, play after this really amazing band. And I wish that we hadn't had to go after him, but it was a pleasure to see him perform. Um, And the lady played a cigar box guitar. And she said, my daddy made this. And I looked her up. Incidentally, the name of the band is Him For Her, H-Y-M-N For Her. Um, and I, I looked up her daddy, as she said, and of course he's like made banjos or made cigar box guitars for like some really famous people. And um, it sort of got me interested in the concept. And so I bought a cigar box guitar from a guy in Arkansas who goes by Blues Boy Jag. Um, and it was just a really cool instrument. And I was looking at it and, you know, I have a master's degree in sculpture. And I thought, you know, I could make one of these. Um, so I started experimenting, 
Um, I got a whole bunch of cigar boxes and just tried sticking pieces of wood on them, <laughs> seeing how it went. And then eventually, um, I bought a Japanese fret saw and, uh, or actually I got it as a Christmas gift and started learning how to, you know, how to lay out a fretboard and, you know, do all the math and stuff for that and made a couple of fretted instruments. And I had for a long time, I exclusively played one of my own creations, uh, with a big, uh, surf rock style guitar pickup in it. And that was partly born out of a frustration with the lack of like really effective banjo pickups. Um, cause I, I really liked playing a four string banjo, but typically you end up with a pickup that's just a transducer and, um, you know, if you try to put that through an effects pedal, it just sounds like crap. And, you know, I wanted something that you could really, you know, just like put a, a bunch of overdrive on it and make it sound really nasty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, like I said, I experimented with that for a while, but then I got this banjo now that I just, it, it just feels so wonderful to play. Um, you know, it's just anytime I pick up anything else now, I just don't feel like playing it <laughs> compared to my really wonderful banjo that I have. Well, um, you know, uh, I don't have a problem with experimenting with things, but um, would you be interested in the idea of just picking up your banjo and throwing something out real fast? Yeah, sure. I've actually got it sitting right here. Alright. Okay, um... Is that coming through? Yes, ma'am. Alrighty. Okay, uh, let's see. So I have this song uh, that I wrote as a response to Little Sister by Elvis, because I really like the song Little Sister by Elvis, but I feel like it's not the sort of thing I could cover. So um, so I wrote this song as kind of a clap back.
kick ass, ma'am. Thank you. That, <laughs> wow. And Thank you very I, much. <laughs> I, I don't think that a lot of people would understand that a banjo could sound like that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I've definitely uh, never been a traditional style banjo player. Um, you know, I can I can do a, a backward roll kind of, and uh, but I just never got really great at the bluegrass picking. It's always been more of a a songwriting tool for me than um, you know than something that I you know I was never really aspiring to be Earl Scruggs, but just uh, you know have something that I can bang around on. Indeed, and, and you know, let let me get back to something that's kind of silly, but because of hearkening to how I was introduced to you, we have mutual friends that are going to be. We brought her up before, Misty from Gypsy Rhythm. I'm assuming that you're also friends with Sheldon and I guess the Peas and everybody. Um, so oh, yeah. are you active in the scene with the rogues or what's what's the deal with that? Uh yeah, we're the Rogues is a little bit of a um seasonal band to you know, we're we're covering the pogues and that tends to be something people really kinda want around St. Patty's Day. So we've got a couple of uh gigs coming up related to uh, one of them is going to be related to Celtic Calling, which is, uh, you know, just sort of the Celtic festival where they're going to be having a lot of different Celtic-themed things going on in town. Uh, and we're going to be doing a happy hour gig for that uh, March 4th at the Boulevard Tavern. And then we've got, um, we're going to be doing the pub crawl for St. Patty's Day on the East End at the Empty Glass, March 18th. And then... There's a possibility we may have another show on St. Patrick's Day in Huntington, but that you know, hasn't been worked out yet. But uh, we, it was kind of funny because we, we started the band thinking that we were just going to do this for St. Patty's Day last year and that we were all just having so much fun with it that we you know, decided to keep it going. We ended up playing the, the West Virginia State Arts and Crafts Fair and a few other gigs, like one for Christmas. And uh, it's been a really, really enjoyable project to be part of. So, I guess I'm looking for a little bit of insight on what Charleston, West Virginia offers for artists, especially visual and audio artists. I mean, is there really that big of a scene up there, or is it something that you guys are just kind of creating and fostering yourselves? Well, it's it can be kind of a. I, I once had an artist friend named Charlie Hamilton describe it as uh, Charleston's like Gilligan's Island. It's the same eight people everywhere you go, um, and, and that's true Sorry. to a degree. <laughs> I started laughing. <laughs> I couldn't stop. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that's yeah. It is well, and he's he's right to a degree. A lot of times you go to art openings, and it does seem like it's the same you know group of people. But the important thing is that it's really um that there is an art scene here and that it is very nurtured um and i'd say the fact that like i said we have a, a music venue that has music seven days a week is a really good thing um we are in the process right now of opening uh, an underground cinema where there's going to be um you know showing some different independent films and kind of like art films um cool. there's several different yeah, that, that's a really interesting project that I'm kind of excited about. Um, 
the fact that we bring through burlesque troops, uh, we've got people that come and do live painting during open mics. I mean, uh, it's interesting how in a place that's known for, um, you know, having a good deal of poverty um, and a really sort of like a just recently have our, you know, state government has uh, taken a turn for the very conservative. Um, and a lot of us, we worry right now that they're going to be cutting funding for, for arts organizations. And, you know, we're all just trying to figure out how we can kind of, you know, pick up the slack and pick up the reins and, and keep this art scene going and breathe life and breathe new life into it because uh, we don't want to see it die out. Um, one of the things that I think would be really wonderful for Charleston is if we had, uh, you know, an all-ages venue that was established. Uh, and there used to be a long time ago a place called Common Grounds, and a lot of people talk about, you know, great shows that they saw there. Famously, Fugazi played there. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. Fugazi also played... Uh, an all-ages venue in Huntington, and all my friends went to this show back in the day. Of course, I I didn't. I was kind of a, a bit of a Pollyanna, but um, <laughs> yeah, if you can imagine that. Um, but, uh, you know, I think just the idea that we had a national touring act come and play for a bunch of teenagers back in the day, I think that was such a cool formative experience for people here. Um, I think that it would just be really nice to have that again. It would be really great um, if, like, just for example, I I know some kids who are in bands that, like, aren't old enough to play at the bars yet. And, you know, it's it's a problem because, you know, we'd like to be able to get them in there, but, you know, you don't want to get in trouble with the law. And, uh, you know, there has been some spotty kind of, like, attendance of some, like, you know, local house shows, and there's been, you know, they've sort of tried and failed a couple different times to have uh, all ages music venues here since then. And, it, you know, it just seems like it's it's a really tricky thing to do, because if you're not selling, you know, booze, it's harder to make money. Um, and you also, you really want to be able to attract an adult audience as well as a young audience. But, you know, it's a challenge to be able to come up with the kinds of music acts that are going to appeal to both. So, um, you know, I, I just I feel like for Charleston, it's a really important thing for us to do and that we need to make that happen. Well, and I think, too, that there's a challenge for Appalachians to honestly embrace their roots anymore because I, I hesitate to say it, but I think we're kind of on the last leg of our generations that kind of appreciate it and everything else has gone so much more digital and this that and other so do you mind reflecting on your roots yeah actually it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because um i found out recently like about a year ago that i had a a great great uncle who was a a fairly well-known banjo player. He was uh, on the radio, played every day on the radio in the 1920s. Uh, and he recorded on, you know, sort of a, a lot of like really early folk and bluegrass recordings um, and was something of a, a style setter back in the day. His name was Cecil Adkins. Um, and of course it's, it's real difficult to Adkins, find anything. ADK, I'm assuming. Yeah. ADK. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, and, uh, 
And it's kind of interesting. I, you know, I tried to do some research and find out more about him, and there just really isn't a lot of recorded material out there because, you know, back then it wasn't something that was a huge priority to have recordings of. You know, people went and saw live music all the time. They played it in their living rooms. Um, and it's interesting because when I was a kid, my dad was in a band, um, and we would go over to my aunt and uncle's house, you know, and they would play cards and eventually somebody would break out a guitar and the drum set and before you know it we'd have a jam going and I thought that's I thought that's what everybody did I thought that was just normal and that was all of America and as uh, growing up I realized that that really wasn't the case that um you know what we have here in Appalachia is really something special and it's something important and we need to not lose sight of that um I think people all over the country have begged and stolen and borrowed from Appalachian culture without acknowledging where their roots came from. Um, this is one of the last places in America where our our culture really is genuine and distinct from other places. Um, so I think it's really important that, that somebody carries that tradition on, you know, and, and even if it's, you know, if it's if it's some young punk, that's fine with me. If they if they can appreciate it, you know. And and what I'm noticing is that uh, some of the young punk kids are the one, that, you know, they're the ones that are actually interested in in learning about this stuff, you know. Um, I, they're they're the ones who are the history is actually important to them, and I think that's that's an amazing thing, um, you know. I, I want to see more people get involved in that. So what do you think about the whole thing with um, the way country music has gone? And I know this is kind of a loaded question, but uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, well, okay, fuck it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I, I have no objection to necessarily any of the specific rising country stars because I don't really actually listen to their music so it makes it hard for me to talk really say anything super informed about it but um I think my biggest issue is that I've noticed that that uh a lot of the country music is is indistinguishable from the stuff on the other stations it's um you know it's yeah, it's a veneer. They're putting a veneer on basically like mass manufactured music. Um, and that's fine. And it's okay to like that stuff. And uh, there's, you know, you're going to get something good out of it because you've got a lot of professionals working really hard on it, um, putting a lot of money into it. So, I mean, of course, some of it's going to be awesome. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's it's enriching our culture. Um, I think if all you ever listen to is, is what's on the radio, you're missing out on a lot of what's going on out in the real world of music. Um, um, I think in, especially in a place like West Virginia, uh, you know, we don't, we don't actually have, we have like two or three radio stations here and, and they're very much like they play the mainstream stuff. And then we have like a, a low power independent radio station called WSTQ where, you know, people can sort of play whatever they want. And it's, it's very different. People play a lot of different kinds of music on there and it's kind of exciting to be able to have that. But otherwise our, our sort of selection of what we get to hear is, is limited. And I think that, um, there's an element to it where shows like reality TV shows like American Idol and The Voice. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they they really they've really fucked up the music industry. They really have. They've made it seem like 
um, you know, it's that karaoke is an okay thing to do, which it is. It's okay to do karaoke, but if that's what you're doing, call it karaoke. I mean, you know, if you're going to come to an open mic with a backing track and you're going to sing over it, like, we're not going to let you do that, <laughs> which is not at my bar, um, you know, and and that's I think that's a problem for some people because it seems like, you know, that's what that's what American culture has been encouraging for a really long time by Yeah, it's almost like what they expect. It is. And it's frustrating because um, you know, I played a show here a couple weeks ago and there was a lady in the audience and she she came up to me and sort of like said something kind of insulting about, you know, she's like, well, you're just so talented. If you'd play something that everybody could sing along to, you could just grab this whole place. And I thought, you know, I mean, I could play you Folsom Prison Blues, but that's not really going to do it for me. And, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm coming from the wrong place by doing this as a, as a means of expression. But I mean, that's kind of what I thought art was about. And, and I feel like sometimes the audiences around here, it's like, you know, they want to hear country roads. They want to hear, um, you know, Taylor Swift, they want to hear Folsom prison blues. Um, and if you don't want to play that stuff, sometimes they get offended. Um, and you know, you don't want to insult your audience. And so it's really, you know, it's a trick to sort of come up with a happy medium between trying to play stuff that people want to hear and then also putting your own music out there, um, you know, putting your own ideas forth. And, you know, I've learned that, um, you know, it doesn't take much to grab people. And sometimes, you know, you might have to do something that you're not, not exactly crazy about to do that, but sometimes it's worth it because, you know, you really want people to, to listen to what you have to say. And sometimes the only way to do it is to, uh, you know, get them to be able to relate to it somehow. And sometimes that takes playing country roads. So it is what it is. I guess my biggest concern right now is that I don't, what I don't want to see is uh, the regional live touring music scene die out. There are so many amazing kind of like touring bands that have never made it big that do really um, awesome material and you know it's it's not sustainable if people don't come out to see it um, or if people only come out to see local bands and not touring bands or you know i mean we're going to lose that scene and it's really going to be missed agreed and i'm actually going to ask you something else it's a little bit loaded <laughs> um okay um in as far as being an Appalachian by birth and all that stuff, I mean, do you encounter or have some bristle that goes up your back when you hear people either mispronounce it or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, never mind. Go right ahead. <laughs> oh, I do. Yeah, people... I'm not... It's it's funny how you know people mispronounce it. That's that's not that big a deal. I do bristle, but I'm not gonna. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to condescend to somebody by correcting them, and it's not worth it necessarily to correct them. But what's really frustrating to me is um, how I see Appalachian people and their culture portrayed in the media. The stereotype. Um, yeah, the stereotype, you know, you see these kind of like uh, poverty porn photos, essays and vice or whatever, and it's just so offensive. It's like, you know, people from other places, they come here and 
you know, they shake their heads and they feel like, well, these these people have just, they've done this to themselves or something. And, you know, they don't want to admit the fact that they like having electricity too and that their electricity comes from coal and that, you know, the people here have broken their backs to provide electricity for the entire country for like a generation. Um, you know, and the people here are, you know, they're they're living in poverty and working under terrible conditions so that somebody in New England can like, you know, crank up their air conditioner. So I just feel like, you know, those people don't get to talk down to my people. Um, you know, those people don't get to come here and, you know, take a take photographs of a, you know, a kid with a popsicle in their mouth and, and call it art. It's that's not what it is. You know, it's exploitative and I don't like it. What the hell was that? <laughs> I think that was my cat knocking over a food bowl. <laughs> Holy shit. I think, I think he must have agreed with me about that statement. <laughs> well, please finish your rant. I was enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was a story that came out here a couple years ago about a a couple, they were photographers, and they, they stopped somewhere in, like, a very rural part of West Virginia. And, um, you know, I think it was like they took some photographs, and some crazy lady thought that they were taking pictures of her kid. And so she followed them to a gas station and basically sort of tried to hold them hostage. Um, and so they, you know, this sort of news story, news story came out about it. And, you know, the couple sort of, like, portrayed... You know, the people that tried to detain them as, you know, like crazy backwards West Virginia woods people, you know, and, you know, like they were talking as though like, well, we've been through West Virginia so many times and there are so many nice people here and we've taken photographs and we just really want to help and expose the plight of the people here. And it's kind of like. You know, I mean, how many times has a photographer come through and made a spectacle of the poverty? And, you know, I, I, on, if it were my kid in that picture, I would be, I would want answers from someone too. Like, why is it that you think that's okay? It's not okay. Come on, you'd be pissed. (laughs) I would be pissed. I would demand answers. Um, You know, I was definitely like really frustrated when here recently a Vice article came out and it was a photo essay. And like I said, it was just, it was just straight poverty porn. I mean, there's absolutely no cultural value to it. Um, And what was even more insulting was the commentary and the guy talking about, you know, people going to church on Sunday. And it's like, you know what? Fuck you. You you don't live here. You don't understand what it's been like for these people, how, uh, you know, they have been just repeatedly culturally oppressed and beat down and, uh, you know, denied basic human rights. I mean, not even just these people, but our people. Our people. And, you know, I don't want to overstate that. I'm not, I mean, I'm from Huntington. I'm totally a city girl. Um, And, you know, I I was fortunate enough to grow up in a, a, you know, middle class working family. Um, But, you know, I'm basically two generations away from just abject poverty. I mean, people that, that did not have a pot to piss in. And, uh, you know, I just feel like it's a disservice to them and their hard work and, you know, the the difficulties that they've come through. And not just come through, but, like, you know, been resilient through and, and managed to, like, create and, and add to American culture despite, you know, being oppressed. Uh, you know, like I said, I don't want to overstate that, but I, I think it's important 
you know, for people to recognize that Appalachia isn't just, you know, isn't just fodder for whatever you want to project. You know? well, I, I don't even necessarily think oppressed as much as overlooked for their role in what America is. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, absolutely. So, anyway, um, I do appreciate you coming on. I mean, is there anything else that you would like to get out to tell people how to get in touch with you, how to follow you, all the... God damn, you've got so much stuff going on, <laughs> you know. Any, I do. Any followings? <laughs> uh, you can feel free to follow me on Instagram, and you can just find just Pepper Fandango on Instagram. Uh, you can follow my Facebook as well. Um, I have some recordings floating out there on iTunes and Spotify, so you feel free to check those out. Uh, I plan on eventually putting out i have a compilation of live recordings that i just need to have mixed and mastered that i'm probably going to put up for free so if you follow my facebook you should be able to probably download those here within the next month or so for free um if you want to catch uh the charles rogues we're going to be like i said right around st patty's day at the empty glass um and uh if you want to catch the laser beams um you can follow us on our facebook as well um we don't have anything booked right at the moment, but um, we were planning on trying to put together some kind of a, a big burlesque blowout for the spring as soon as we can figure out where the best venue for that's going to be. All the rogues? Um, oh, God. Oh, no, the the laser beams. I'm sorry. Yeah, the laser <laughs> <Okay>. beams. <laughs> I don't know if those guys are going to be down with doing burlesque. We'll see. <laughs> I was just going to say, uh, yeah, I got to avert my gaze. exactly well you know i i've always thought that it would be interesting to try to do a mashup and and do like burlesque to the pokes but i don't know that may be that may be a little down that may require a little more creativity than i have in me so (laughs) oh very nice and i do appreciate you coming on do you do you mind leaving us with some random something since you happen to have your banjo handy? Sure. Uh, thank you again so much for having me. I appreciate you uh, being patient because I've been, it's been a, a busy couple of months here for me. I just moved into a house and all of my Life money. Happens. Yeah, it, it does. Um, but yeah, let me leave you off here with a. Uh, how about a. This is a little song called Waiting. Uh, Okay. All right. So this is a this is a song that I wrote after uh, being put on hold. You can hear my cat meowing in the background there. She's going to do the backup vocals. Uh, <laughs> so this is a song I wrote. Uh, it's called Waiting. Uh, and I wrote it after being put on hold by eBay.
question that came in. <laughs> okay. And um, I I honestly had to look it up just because I wasn't familiar with it. But there was something about John Prine's flag decal and a reading that you were planning. John Prine's flag decal and a reading. Oh, I don't know. That's interesting. American Flag Decal by John Prine, the song, A Dramatic Reading. <laughs> God, I don't know. That that doesn't sound like anything that I'd signed up for, but but I don't know. I have really bad at memories. Okay, well, uh, I'll just go ahead and shoot her a message and tell her to fuck off. Well, no, it's like I said, uh, you know, if that was a request, then, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe I could come up with something. But, yeah, no, that wasn't something that I, I had signed up for that I knew about. <laughs> I know that we um, we talked a lot about doing a, uh, a naked read aloud at the Empty Glass, but I don't know that we ever actually got that put together, so. A what? But, yeah, <laughs> a naked read aloud, like, you know, when you... <laughs> Sort of like the figure drawing class, except with, uh, you know, you read a book out loud. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how that came up then. Uh, my <laughs> yeah. apologies, but... Oh, no, not at all. I, I'm wondering if maybe there was just, you know, something I'm, I'm forgetting about that was a mistake, but... I could but have been a couple of beers at the bar, so... <laughs> you never That's know. Exactly. So, well, hell, actually, that makes it all the more fun. Um, would you like to listen to it and comment? Sure. All right. Uh, give me just a second here. Uh, shit. 
I've never done this either. Got <laughs> <laughs> your flag, the cow won't get you into heaven anymore. They're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. Now Jesus don't like killing, no matter what the reason's for. And your flag, the cow won't get you into heaven. If you join the Christmas club, we'll give you ten of them flags for free. Well, I didn't mess around a bit. I took him up on what he said. And I stuck them stickers all over my car. And one on the for a head. But your flag cow won't get you in heaven. song <laughs> in its own way but it's a great song yeah that's that's classic john prine you know and and i, I like the uh i definitely like the message that it's it's putting out there um that's definitely right up my alley maybe i'll have to cover that one <laughs> Well, do you mind elaborating just because Appalachia and the stereotype and everything? I mean, everyone assumes we're just backwoods snake handlers. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a great um, sort of like uh, it, we've been we've been stereotyped. We are the white working class. Like we are the ones who um, you know vote against our own self interest and all that stuff. Um, and you know, thank you that's, for saying that. God yeah. damn it! Thank I, you. <laughs> and and it's uh, sadly that's in a lot of places very true. Um, but I will say that it's like uh, you know I don't want I don't want to alienate you know my conservative friends and family members because it's important that uh, you know I, I be able to communicate with them and hear their voice and have a dialogue with them. And the frustrating thing is, uh, you know, I feel like there are some people that won't be convinced by facts no matter what. 
Um, and then there are some people who are in positions where they're so disenfranchised and absolutely subject to the whims of their their peers and their you know the people that they know at work, and they will go along with whatever is is normative for them at the time. You know, the last thing they want to do is rock the boat because you know that's their support structure, and so if their support structure tells them that you know. Uh, the Mexicans are threatening their jobs and, you know, it doesn't matter that they're in rural West Virginia and have maybe only ever seen one Mexican person in their whole life, you know, <laughs> uh, they're, they're going to go along with what authority tells them. Um, and that's something that just for a long time, West Virginia has been, um, a colony, a resource colony, basically, um, you know, and, and, a lot of, of really amazing things have been born out of that, but, but a lot of people have suffered for generations because of it. And so, um, you know, I think to try to paint a picture of, of Appalachians or, you know, us redneck hillbillies as being sort of like responsible for the ills of the world or, you know, that's just a little bit inaccurate. And it's, it's interesting because I think John Prine in particular has always, uh, you know, had a, a really strong political leaning, uh, just like Woody Guthrie. Um, you know, I think like there's a really strong, you know, songwriting tradition here that is it's punk and it's it's anti-fascist and it's just, and it's like there's a strong beat and and a lot of people can understand because uh, you know historically this is a place can where I people surmise? oh absolutely oh. Yeah, it's, it's fuck you. We all understand we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I sort of feel like the it's really important, especially now, not to alienate people, um, you know, especially just based on their political leanings, because we are stronger together. We really are, uh, you know, it's the only way we're going to make it through this. You know, it's the only way we're going to make it through the next four years or the next, you know, eight years or however long it's going to end up being. You know, I'm we have to keep that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. I, you know, I don't want to get you in trouble either. But, uh, yeah, I think it's important that, like, especially here in Appalachia, like, you know, people support each other and support the culture. Indeed. And I do thank you again, ma'am. I'm going 